This is Straight Talk in the COVID Economy, and my name is Larry Quick. Our world has changed and there's no going back. The COVID economy is now very real. We are adapting to telework, Zooming, online learning and new industries like PanSafe and other opportunities revealed by COVID-19. The challenges are also with us. Bankruptcies, unemployment, debt and confusion. In Straight Talk in the COVID economy, we meet thinkers and innovators who bring insight and information into the opportunities and risks of our rapidly emerging COVID economy. Straight Talk in the COVID Economy is brought to you by Resilient Futures. This is alongside our partner, Impact Africa Network. Impact Africa Network is a non-profit startup studio in Nairobi on a mission to ensure young, talented Africans have a chance at participating in the digital transformation of Africa as creators and owners. If grassroots change is something that excites you, visit www.impactafrica.network. By doing that, you'll be able to support as donors and mentors the Impact Africa Network. Hi, my name's Larry Quick, and welcome to Straight Talk in the COVID Economy. Uh, very fortunate today to have my colleague David Platt with us today, and we're hoping to make that a feature of the future. Hello, David, who's just in the next room to me, but we're socially distancing today. Yes, hi, Larry. Thanks very much for having me along today. I'm very excited for this particular conversation. Well, that's not what you said when I asked you to make coffee. Anyway, we'll move on from there. Uh, I'd also like to really welcome our good friend, Joe Camerano, uh, who's all the way in Providence, Rhode Island, which David and I have a special place in our heart for, given that we've both spent time and, uh, in Providence. And David actually worked with Joe at Providence College, where Joe is today. And I'll let Joe, uh, David introduce Joe. Yeah, thanks, Larry. And, and Joe, again, it's such a pleasure um, to connect up and to have this conversation. And just for our audience, uh, Joe is a, a professor of political science and public and community service at Providence College. Um, and his expertise is in areas like the presidency, uh, Congress, public management, campaigns, elections. I believe in the past we've had heaps of conversations about the media and the impact of media on elections and voting and so on. And um, it's just a real pleasure to have Joe join us today and to dig into what he's seeing uh, and start to emerge in the wake of the most recent uh, elections in America. So, Joe, I'm so, so excited to have you join us today. I'm so happy to be here and I'm happy to be here talking with people who may not live in the country they're actually interested in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, as I said, we both have a deep interest, I think, uh, um, we follow American uh, politics and the social economics of America with all its complexity. It's one of the things that attracted me to go and work there, whereas I talk about my America, which is somehow different to what you read in the papers at times, but just the complexity. You know, working in Australia gives you an, a, a buzz in terms of what's going on, uh, and it's so um, uh, available, if you like, and accessible to what's happening but the complexities of working in somewhere like America, and we know that there's the United States, but there's 50 countries actually there. But I, I loved one of the things that I read on uh, Joe's LinkedIn bio, where he said, I'm just a person who's trying to figure out life while making others feel better about themselves and the world, uh, and have just fallen into the occupation of a college professor. Now, I can tell from what, uh, talking with David that that's very much uh, how he sees you as well. Um, so <laughs> I appreciate we that. I wrote that quite a long time ago. Please don't go to my LinkedIn page. I haven't touched it in years. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd still, I still think it's reminiscent of maybe some of your, uh, your philosophies. But we thought today we'd talk about the subject. Uh, it's a question. Is what, in what shape is the American experiment? Now, we're doing this on the 5th of um, November, um, Australian time, 4th of November, and we know that on the 3rd of November, there was, um, what do you call it? It was, oh, that's right. Um, no, that's right. It's an election. That's right. Yes, yes. That, that Some people call it other things, but it's all part of the American experiment. Um, so in what shape is the American experiment and projections for 2021 and beyond. Now, I did say to Joe that we're not going to necessarily mention any candidates or political parties, but uh, we'll see how we go with that. 
So um, the opening question I had here is, is, and we hear this a lot, is the USA the greatest country in the world? Yes, no, and why? Well, <laughs> I'm going to be one of those Americans who say that's a value judgment. And I, you know, I think it's in the tier of countries that have greatness. Um, so yes, we're a great country. Are we the greatest? I don't believe in rank orders. Um, I believe in ordinal categories. And we're in the category that Australia and Canada and Norway and Denmark and Germany, and, you know, so we're in the good category. I don't think we're the greatest country in the world right now. I think the American experiment is still possible, but it's hanging by a thread. Uh, and not just because of the current president or the outcome of this election. We've been sort of on a slide, you know, kind of not unlike the slide that other great nations have had to deal with. Um, and we just haven't made a decision as to how we're going to deal with it. And so we're in a little bit of trouble in my view. So, so just picking up on that slide point, Joe, we have a term in, in our work called managed adaptive decline which is as the, the world sort of the conditions in the world start to decline, what organizations, communities, people, countries can fall into is trying ever more to kind of adapt to that in a very well-managed way rather than kind of releasing what is no longer working and trying to reinvent into what might be possible next. With that kind of framing, what, what would you add to that thought about that slide of America that you're seeing? Well, I would say that um, prior to the current president, even maybe the last three presidents before that understood that. And they were trying to manage sort of a reimagining and re-engineering of our role in the world, but also sort of how the government's role is to promote opportunity for people. Because in the United States, we really are uh, a liberal nation, not unlike your liberal party, that both our Democratic and Republican parties really are part of your liberal party, um, maybe with some fringes on the right and left. But the, but the reality is that they have all sort of tried to, to do that. And I think Barack Obama probably did it better than the other, the other two, Bill Clinton and, and George W. Bush. Um, so I, it, it, we were on the way for what I would call a soft landing, where the U.S. would not lose its power, you know, in the way that great empires fell, like the great Portuguese empire or the British empire, but that it would sort of come in for a soft landing where it's still arguably the most important country in the world, or at least among the community of most important countries, that it would be more collaborative. Um, rather than assertive on its own. But the problem was Barack Obama didn't get the plane to land. We were kind of a few thousand feet above the ground coming in slowly. And with the Trump administration, uh, this is somebody who just decided, no, we're not landing. We're going to go back to where we were. And he pulled straight up. And now we could very well end up in a nosedive as a result. And so I don't think we're there yet. But I think depending on what happens over the next year, the U.S. is really going to see either a return to that soft landing of being a more cooperative um, community member in the world or whether we're going to go at our own and eventually collapse suddenly and quickly. Yeah. If I was to sort of put it this way, Joe, let me thoughts are, but the experiment that is a country is sort of quite well known historically that, you know, the experiment that was sort of uh, colonization um, uh, in, from Europe, colonies coming out, uh, uh, the colonization of empire and the building of empire. And I often wonder, given America um, had its sort of internal growth uh, up to the First World War uh, and then sort of went quiet after the First World War, come the Second World War, it actually then uh, established that experiment of empire. And uh, that, that happened at the same time as globalization. And if you think about America's expansion since the Second World War, 
it's done extremely well um, in expanding what you might call a different type of empire. Uh, and it's also as an experiment that you could actually relate to what happened with, say, the United Kingdom or, or um, uh, other European places where the experiment failed after a while and they went back to doing their own knitting. Uh, and I think the other thing that propelled America in the American experiment is globalization, as I said. And there's a set of standards there that America set. You know, everything you can think about that the um, baby boomers love typically is American. It has an English influence, but motor cars, um, big houses, you name it. it you know, the American dream was very much planted in Australia at the same time. So I wonder if we see it as like a normal sort of atrification of empire. Yeah, I do think that the way the United States really exerted its influence, you're right, is through what you know, Joseph Nye, however, referred to as um, soft power, the idea, or now we call it smart power, um, the, the idea that people want to be like us. Um, you know, whether it's culturally, politically, if you look after World War II with globalization, um, you also saw a rewriting of constitutions. And most of the countries that rewrote their constitutions moved more toward the system that we had created and away from the more parliamentary system that you have from the British. Um, and so that's soft power, that cultural power, that's intellectual power, and this idea of liberty sort of going hand in hand with progress um, was what I think kept us for about 50 years after World War II. And the problem is we're seeing indications of that fraying. Um, and part of it is that, you know, this urban rural divide that we already sort of mentioned is getting more acute. Um, and it's not only an urban, it's not only a geographic problem, it's an education problem, it's an age problem. Uh, it's, it's an opportunity problem that, um, you know, we're getting more and more urbanized in our wealth. And as manufacturing goes away from rural areas, and it naturally has to flow somewhere else because of labor costs. Um, and, you know, the imperative to make a profit means we go to China, even if we have to lay off a thousand people. And so kind of that capitalist imperative that was so strong in the United States is now coming back to haunt us and creating gross inequality. Um, and we're seeing a backlash. And we have a system, by the way, that favors rural America over urban America. Our political system is specifically designed in a way that does that. And so we're seeing more tension. Uh, and this past election, we're, we see a manifestation of that where we don't know the final result in part because even though Joe Biden has gotten more votes than Donald Trump and has a majority, that's not enough in this country. Mm. And so we're starting to see lots of things that are coming back to haunt us. And we, we haven't been very dynamic with finding answers. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting uh, conundrum to be in. And, and we see that not, not just as a conundrum for America, but it's a conundrum emerging in other Western countries, if you like, but very much similarly here in Australia, there's an increasing, seemingly increasing divide politically between those who are rural and maybe of certain demographics in terms of age and, and race and so on, and those who are more urbanized, metropolitan, different set of experiences, if you like. It, it, there's a number of questions around that. The first is, um, what, what do you think it might take to reunify um, that divide, right? And that, there's an American question around that, but then, you know, extending that into a global environment, how do we bridge a divide that at the moment seems to be growing and potentially growing faster. You know, I, I, David, you and I talked about that long ago, how you find this mutual common interest that might provide that kind of connection to allow people to cooperate and collaborate. Uh, unfortunately, in the United States, we have moved the other way. Um, and we, we're seeing this tragedy of the commons, as it's called, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term. Yeah. I assume you are, but I just want to make sure. But the, um, the tragedy of the commons is we're beginning to realize that increasingly population centers are going to dominate over rural America 
And so rural America is trying to rig our system to continue to squeeze out their, their advantage and they have fewer and fewer tools. And so they're, they're using all sorts of legislation, um, redistricting, which is you know, the redrawing of district lines for, for our constituencies in the House of Representatives to advantage um, you know, rural areas over urban areas, which had been outlawed in the 1960s by US Supreme Court ruling saying, one person, one vote, people. Um, well, they're finding a way to get around that. And so, for example, in the state of Wisconsin, even though I think it was 54% of the vote went to the Democratic Party when they ran for state legislatures, 63% of the people picked, it, picked were Republicans. Um, and so they're using the tools of government. They're using the courts. They're using uh, you know, the right to redraw district lines as a way of, of holding on to that which they have, knowing that it's not going to be there forever but they're gonna get theirs now while they can. And that's, that's a problem. That's a serious problem with our system. And that, if I can just a quick follow on with that, but that very much is about structure and power and those hanging on to power. And, and I understand to a certain extent why those in power want to do that. But what I'm also interested in, what we're interested in is what about the people, right? So that, that, that power base is supposedly representative of the masses, how, how conscious do you think the, the ordinary American, Australian, European, English person is of the power dynamics that are flying around them to a certain extent, potentially um, manipulating them, I guess, in terms of decision? Well, you know, I think they know they're being used, but I think they're being transactional. I think, you know, to be honest, I believe that rural America, rural Great Britain, rural Ireland, rural Australia, um, they understand that they don't have much, much other choice if they want to be listened to or if they want to have any kind of power or a seat at the table of power. And so they, they're engaging in the transaction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a very modern notion of, of how you conduct yourself in the world rather than being transformational, which was sort of what we're supposed to aspire to. But they're like, no, you know, if I support this person, I'm going to make, I'm going to get something for myself. And that's the only way I'm going to get something for myself because no one else listens. There's a, um, a Berkeley sociologist, Harley, uh, Harley Hochschild, who went and visited a place where she had worked in the 1960s registering voters in Louisiana. And she wanted to find out why the very people who get the most from government, who pay the least in taxes relative to what they get back, who are subject to environmental degradation, um, who have been left behind by the Republican government that runs the state, why they still only vote Republican. Uh, And she basically said they feel they have no other choice, that the Democratic Party, which has represented labor for so long uh, has kind of sold them out in exchange for the coastal elites or the the cosmopolitan urban voters. And they feel like there's no one else to turn to. And I, you know, I saw that in Great Britain. I see it here and I see it elsewhere. Canada also has a similar dynamic going on. So I don't think they're, I think they know what's going on. I think that's why they're behaving the way they are because they don't think they have any other choice. So the answer, David, I think is give them a different choice. It's interesting you say that because um, um, I was listening to a program just recently. Uh, we're, we're talking about the fact that um, uh, if you go back when the labor movement started to grow, um, the both Republican Democrat didn't want to really know about it. And there was no, the labor movement was strong but never created a political party. And the Democrats saw, as it, as it grew, the ability to own that section of the vote. Uh, so, um, and I'm, I'm, this is a big generalisation because we know that America is divided along many lines uh, politically uh, when it gets down to school districts and councils and states, etc. Uh, but that that um, uh, that um, Labor Party, say, for instance, if you take 
the Labor Party of um, the United Kingdom, the Labor Party of Australia. Um, we can actually say that, say, for instance, under um, uh, Bob Hawke, who's an um, Australian politician, and uh, you know, the English equivalent uh, for Labor, um, whose name escapes me right now. No, um, I I yeah, can see. He, yeah, he, he, they bought uh, the Labor Party towards the centre and were able to capture that new understanding of young people, particularly baby boomers, who were saying, you know, we are the new generation and maybe, you know, generations after, but we're not fuddy-duddies old, you know, um, right-wingers and we're not fuddy-duddy old left-wingers. We're more centrists. Um, You're talking about Tony Blair in Great Britain? Blair, that's right. Um, Tony Blair, okay. Uh, I was thinking way back, you know, we're in the early 20th century. Oh, no, 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 Blair's. No, 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 okay. Uh, I don't think they, they had a centrist. In the United States, Tony Blair is actually the root of the problem that we have with the lack of social or socioeconomic cleavages in the parties. That Tony Blair is part of that neoliberal movement that Bill Clinton... Yeah and to a great extent, Barack Obama is uh, sort of represented. Uh, and so in some ways you're right, it's a, it's a middle way, but that middle way meant that they had to cut deals with corporate interests, particularly finance, yep. um, you know, the financial sector. And the financial sector then turns around and makes money off the backs of labor. Yes. Uh, and, you know, that's the problem is that, that Poor people who used to be naturally Democrats feel the party has abandoned them because, yeah. you know, Wall Street is the Democrats are as much in line with Wall Street as the Republicans. Yeah, absolutely. And you, what you have is this sort of um, amazing sort of situation where you can have the um, absolute American elites, that old sort of uh, American eagle look faced, uh, pale male and sometimes called stale. Uh, be the party that the people who are disenfranchised from the American economy who vote for them. And, you know, I, I mean, you cannot explain to me how people really think that Donald Trump, for instance, um, or even George Bush uh, uh, and Dick Cheney uh, have any sort of relationship with a person who's struggling out in the in the boondocks or struggling out in, you know, in regional areas. But I, I, I think that phenomena uh, is also backed up by, um, by the culture that is American, which talks about American exceptionalism being the greatest country in the world. I mean, I even heard a comment recently where, yeah, we have the best electoral system in the world. Yeah, that's not... I mean, that's just pure unadulterated nonsense. Yeah. Absolutely. We have one of, the, one of the most troublesome in the world. It's still a democracy, but it's a mess. It's disorganized. It's chaotic. It's structured in a way to discourage individuals from voting. Um, you know, I always love to use Australia when I teach my students about our political system and compare it to other countries. Look at the turnout rates, um, you know, 50 versus 90. Um, and, you know, there, it's not a coincidence. And the idea that an individual is responsible for registering themselves to vote, that's held near and dear in the United States, which means, you know, less than two thirds of the people ever register the vote. And out of that, two thirds vote. And so we're down to half of the adult population voting. Uh, and, you know, that, we have a terrible system, but it's by design. We had a compromise. We wanted the, these little 13 states to have their own say, and it developed into 50 states. And so each state has its own rules, depending on when they write their constitutions or rewrite them or rewrite laws, they look different. And so, you know, you have a state like Florida where for whatever reason, you can count all the early voting ballots before the election day. You just can't share them with the public. And then you release them on election night. But in Pennsylvania, where there's a mess right now, you're not allowed to even open the envelopes until election day. 
So they have to sit in a warehouse. Um, and then on election day, you pull them out. Well, in a year of a pandemic where, you know, millions of people are voting by mail or early, they're sitting there and you've got millions of them that you have to count in 12 hours. It's impossible. Yeah, yeah. It, and we have a mess. Our electric, electrical system is not anywhere near the best in the world. No. It, it, I, 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 um, uh, I, I, I look at the electoral system as part of um, um, knitting uh, things together as you go. If you're going to, it's, it's almost like um, why most mergers fail. And I'm talking about completely different subject in the corporate area. Why mergers fail is because of a whole range of different things that, that you know, it's like, it's like saying, okay, um, we've got water. The other powerful thing we need is electricity. And we also need gas and we need fire. So what we're going to do is we're going to put them all together in the same box. Well, what, what are you going to get is they don't work together. They never do. And I look at the systemic failure of, um, uh, uh, of America. The social economics can never work. I, I, and I say that with sort of being aghast. As one of the, the, I, I lived and worked in the United Kingdom for 10 years. And you, you had one government and the range of councils. There's no, mm -hmm. apart from nowadays, you have a separation with Scotland, etc. But largely speaking, the public service works together, be good or bad or whatever it might be, but it's, at least it's consistent. The public service in America is so inconsistent and sometimes diametrically opposed, uh, particularly so living in Rhode Island, you know what it's like. If you go, you would go to Massachusetts or Connecticut. You know, it's different. You know, exactly, it's a systemic you know, I, inbuilt failure to actually connect with each other. Yeah, sometimes my students call me Professor Metaphor, um, <laughs> but I would say that sort of government in the United States is it's not unlike the first paragraph of A Tale of Two Cities. And, you know, there are the best of governments and there are the worst of governments. There's a time where government works, there's a time where the government's in chaos. And the problem is it's all at the same time. Um, and so you're right. I think um, even in the city of Providence, you have some departments that are extraordinarily well run. And then you have other departments that are completely corrupt and incompetent or incompetent, we'll say, and sometimes both. Um, you know, the police department for years was the place where patronage was handed out. And so, and the public works department, that's changed, but that's possible in the United States. And, you know, the state, if you look at the pandemic responses, I have to say, you know, they made some mistakes early on, but the state of New York really got their act together. The state of New Jersey really got their act together and they still have it together. Rhode Island has had its act together from day one, Fortunately, they weren't in sort of ground zero when it came. But, you know, other states, it's, it's right now an other disaster. If you take the middle half of our country, you know, I'm terrified as to what's going to happen in three weeks. So, yeah, the United States, the decentralization of everything in the United States, which is, again, goes back to its, its hyper individualistic culture. Yep. and its yep. liberal roots, you know, its Lockean roots, um, really means that there can be brilliance that comes out and dynamism that comes out, but also disaster. And that leaves a lot of people left behind. And increasingly, it's rural people yeah. who are being left behind. God, I've got about 90 different questions in my head at the moment. Uh -oh. But um, I remember nearly 20 years ago now, I guess, Joe, us talking about the role of the media in all of this and and how the media is manipulated to a certain extent i remember you saying back to that you know the divide that exists and that when it comes to participation in elections that by and large a lot of the the um the media campaigning is actually designed to get people to throw up their hands and say it's a disaster my 
my vote doesn't count, why bother? Because it's easier to sort of retain the base of those who will always vote Republican because that's what dad and granddad and grandma did and those will always vote Democrat, same reasons. I grew up in Massachusetts, you know, you know what that story is, right? And that's the way it's been for generations in my family. And then you have 40 odd percent in the middle, most of whom are highly unpredictable. And so the best option is to get them not to participate than to try to work out the messaging that will align them and get them to go one way or the other. Are, are you still seeing that very much in the messaging? You know, we, we look at things like the emergence of the Lincoln Project, which dumped, you know, literally, I don't know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars into advertising, which seems to have had no real impact one way or the other and so on. What are your thoughts about the role of media in the context of that chaos? You know, it's, it's actually quite interesting. I do think demobilization is you know, but a little more implicit than explicit these days that, you know, they've already demobilized 25% of our population who yeah. will never pay attention. Um, and again, those tend to be what we call low information voters, tend to have only high school education. Um, you know, their income is usually hourly wages. And so it's not, it's at or below the median for the United States. Um, you know, they, they've been demobilized. Uh, and so this year, because we have such a transactional president uh, who ran a very transactional campaign, they actually worked really hard to mobilize to get new voters. And it seems to have worked. You're right. The elite, the elites don't get it. Um, the Lincoln Project was a bunch of people who I actually have a great deal of respect for, but I never expected to have, for them to have any influence beyond Washington. Mm -hmm. You know, beyond sort of the group of that pay attention all the time, have a lot of knowledge and have a lot of interest. Um, what the Trump administration did was they found ways to, you know, using marketing techniques that are cutting edge. They found ways to make very specific appeals or transactions, so to speak, saying you have to vote for me because if you don't, this is going to occur. Or if you do, you'll get that. And so whether it's a subsidy for, for you know, corn producers or corn farmers or people who live in that area, or whether it's I'll protect you from public housing, um, you know, in the suburbs. And, you know, it seems to have, you know, the Trump campaign has so micro, micro targeted and done it in a very transactional way saying you have to vote for me because if you don't, babies will be killed by abortionists. Yeah. But you only say that to the people who go to church and who feel strongly about that. And then you go over here and you say, you know, I'm saving the suburbs from you know poor people, but you're really saying black people or brown people. Um, and then you go to this side and say, we have to protect our borders. And it's, it, you know, it's kind of people who are racist. And, you know, you make these transactions and they were very effective at mobilizing. More people turned out to vote for Donald Trump this time than last time. And they did it among a small segment of our population. So I would say they mobilized this year. And that's why Trump did better than we expected. Interesting. I didn't mean to ramble on. I apologize. No, no, it's oh, right. No, no, that's yeah, that's, that's that's oh, that's right. We're not in the U.S. I don't have to do this in 30 seconds. No. <laughs> it's one of the great things about podcasts, actually, is you can have proper conversations and get into the meat. You don't have to get the whole message out in five minutes. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So um, uh, one thing that always amazed me arriving in America, uh, having um, spent the first years of my life in the most isolated city in the world, Perth, Western Australia, and then going and living in England for 10 years and going around and seeing Europe and all that sort of stuff and experiencing different cultures um, and then coming back to Australia, then going to America and uh, seeing the fixed views that people have, even to their own detriment. You know, the individualism you talk about as part of the a deep part of the culture, you know, a hyper-individual culture. And, uh, you know, it, I'd sort of seen it on television, but, you know, from a very early age, when you look at the flag and put your hand over your heart and, you know, um, it's that's what you do. I mean, 
um, I can remember saying to somebody, why, why do you do that? And they went, what? I went, do that. And they went, oh, yeah, that. Oh, no, that's, you do that. You're, you're, that's ingrained in you from such an early age. And it goes with the idea of liberty and freedom and American exceptionalism and um, the greatest country in the world. There's a, there's a whole dialogue, a narrative, an organic narrative that exists in every American, no matter who you vote for, even no matter what colour you are or whatever, is as soon as, the, as soon as the anthem gets played and the flag goes up, you're like that, you know. Uh, and you're seen to be radical, absolutely radical, if you take a knee, you know, um, to make a statement. Uh, in Australia, we don't have that. Uh, we, we, we just don't. Um, I, I remember we had a, pr a prime minister called um, John Howard, who uh -huh. said that we're going to attach funding to, to every school because you have to have a flag and you raise the flag every morning, you must come out and um, uh, sing the national anthem and salute the flag. And everyone was horrified. I was truly horrified. I actually said, well, you know, and then they tried to bring in a rule about burning the flag. And I said, well, you know, I love Australia. I love Australia for Australians and, and the beautiful country we have. No flag or song represents what Australia means for me. And, uh, you know, I'd buy me a hundred flags and I'll burn one a day because that's not our Australia. It's mm -hmm. symbolic of something. But, you know, so we build this symbolism in America that's so deep in the culture. You know, it's sort of like uh, if you haven't got a flag flying out your house, you're not American. You're not a patriot. You know, this whole idea of being a patriot. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then you mention one word, doesn't matter who the group is, you mention one word which starts with S and you mention that word and everyone is horrified and the word is socialism. And yeah, it, yeah. It is, you know, I, I say, well, Australia is a really a social democracy. We're very socialist and we like our government systems and we're prepared to pay tax for it. We'll minimise it if we can, but we, you know, we, we, we like our our social services, etc. But in America, that word socialism, but I see, you know, so that I'd like you to talk about that, but also you see the Bernie Sanders thing coming through and, you know, you see the tide turning with that um, sort of notion of socialism in America, which is sort of like one step worse than communism. But, you know, how do you sure. see that all playing out? You know, it's a really interesting question you're positing here. Um, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, when did this really begin? Because there was a period where I, I was in, you know, secondary school in the mid to late 1970s when Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter were presidents. And um, I actually, there was a court ruling that said you don't have to stand for the pledge. And I exercised my freedom of choice to not, not stand at home room. And you know, there were some people who were uncomfortable with it, but they accepted it. Um, but beginning in the 1980s, that began to change and patriotism became sort of more fully integrated into political appeals. And then, you know, Ronald Reagan clearly um, stood for that hyper patriotism, reasserting American power. Uh, and so in the 1980s, we began to see sort of that patriotism as an identity rather than as a practice. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of, I don't want to get too theoretical here, but that sort of equation of an identity versus a set of behaviors um, has increased over time, not decreased. And it, it's one of the primary problems we have with our system is that we have turned into what you might call postmodern politics, where substance is irrelevant that governing is less important than winning um, and having power. And so all of these things that we do that used to be um, sort of an expression of diverse patriotism, we're all Americans, even though we disagree, now becomes if you're one of us, you'll be patriotic. And if you're not one of us, you're a socialist. Yeah. Uh, and you know that socialism is the new Soviet threat. Soviet Union's long gone. 
um, but we're still seeing red in this country. And in order to sort of keep sort of its, its sort of coalition together, the Republican Party, and you know, I don't want to get too partisan, but they have very consciously understood they can't win with just the bankers' votes. They have to get the votes of the masses. And the way they're doing it is through this social identity called patriotism, uh, where we're number one, no matter what, we're always right. And if you don't believe in us, you're a commie. Um, and so since communism is effectively gone, we're now socialists. Um, and that's a, you're right, that is a bad word. Although it's younger generations are much more comfortable with it here. Um, I think what we're seeing there's, uh, as my generation begins to sort of get old and, and leave the planet, um, the younger generations are less afraid of collectivism and they see it more as an answer. So we're probably gonna see an evolution of change back to a much more social democratic mindset the way we were in the, in the 30s and 40s. Um, but, but yeah, no, it's an identity. It's not, it's not a practice anymore. And you know, I used to automatically stand up and just you know, listen to the national anthem even if I didn't sing it. But now it feels I do it because I feel I have to do it. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise other people will be mad at me. And that's an indication that it has a different meaning now. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I was at the grand final, the football grand final, and uh, for me, um, it's a struggle. It's a real struggle. Uh, and, uh, but it's, it's quite funny because people will stand up. And, um, I mean, I didn't stand up when I went to the grand final last time because it's like, you know, I, that's not what, who I am to sort of um, express my feelings for my country. I mean, I have a lot of feelings for my country, but I want it to be object, as objective as possible. So it's, as you put it, it's a, it's a, um, a practice. It's, it's not a, uh, uh, yeah, something that you have to do because yeah. you have to do it. But, you know, the interesting thing I always find funny is what you watch, you know, when they pull the teams out, the two Australian Football League teams, they're all in a row and they're playing the, the, the song before the game and uh, the anthem. And you can see that some guys don't know the national anthem and they're, they're <laughs> you know, and it, I think it's funny because it's sort of like that's Australian. Is like, you know, we love our football and we love our cricket. And we love, you know, the bush and we love all sorts of things in this country, but we don't really know what the national anthem is. And, you know, you still love your country. Absolutely. Yeah. But Dave, Dave's a, a good example of a hybrid. I mean, I forgot to mention that he is actually an American. He hasn't been here for 102 years, so he's fully accepted yet, but... Um, I'd be interested in his view of the difference between an Australia that he's come to know and the America that he knew. Um, yeah, that's a, well, <laughs> it's a big question because when I watch what I see in America now, having, you know, been back in Australia for 18 years or something, um, it doesn't feel like the place that I grew up in. Um, it doesn't look like what I thought America was meant to be in the world. Um, and that's, that's a hard thing to deal with. Uh, and when I, you know, have lived in a place where, you know, yeah, there's still social economic inequality and there are people who are marginalized and who struggle, but the system by and large is, is set in such a way to try to sort of capture the masses here in Australia, right? There is a social safety net. There's a, a healthcare safety net so that everyone has some level of equitable access to the basics, right? And if you, you just think about the basics for survival, Maslow's hierarchy of needs even, right? Like most Australians can access that in some meaningful way. I was, um, when I was six weeks ago, so I did a guest lecture, if you like, Joe. My brother's a high school teacher in Florida. Um, and he, wanted, he teaches uh, uh, AP and, uh, in, and IB um, science. And we, all of our work here in Australia is based on complex adaptive systems, but how you can use how systems behave strategically to get change to happen, individuals, communities, uh, businesses, and so on. And he said, can you, we're studying system science. Can you come and share with my kids how this 
sort of works as a way of them understanding that it's not just about the science, there are other applications. And we did all that sort of stuff. And then a group hung around to chat over the lunch break. And one girl said to me, she said, look, we're studying socialism in school. And she said, can you just explain to me how, what does it actually feel like in Australia to be in a socialist country? And I said, well, look, it's, it's more... It's more, Only. Yeah, it's more a social democracy, right? And here's what it, and I explained it to her and she just went, well, how do I shift? I want to move. Like, how do I move to a place that, that offers that? And I'm not advocating for, you know, the masses, although I've heard a number of people recently say, look, depending on how the election goes, we might be knocking on the doors of Australia. But I think, you know, finding a way to cut through that narrative, which says, you know, socialism is the evil thing and to understand when you really understand social democracy and you're looking for some sort of equity around social economics, healthcare, education, yeah. you know, access to the basics. Um, it, I, I just see, you know, Australia for me as a place that represents what I think I thought America was about and then discovered maybe that it wasn't. You know, I, I agree 100% with you. And, you know, I think what ha has happened is, when I, again, when I went to college in the late 70s and early 80s, I was the middle of nine children. Um, my father didn't make very much money, but we lived in a town with outstanding public schools. And there was affordable housing for my parents to buy a little house. And we used that and stayed there, you know, until my father just passed away. And so when I went to college, uh, because I was bright, but also because we didn't have much money, I got grants. And I, got, I left college in the United States in 1982 with $900 in student loan debt, mm. um, which is the equivalent of about four to $5,000 today. My students are leaving with very few grants, but with 70, 80, $90,000 in loans before they go to graduate school to get their professional specializations. Um, and so the opportunity that used to be so deeply integrated into our version of democracy, which was sort of capitalism and democracy together, but politics was not capitalism. That began to change in the 80s and it's become commodified. And so now our politics is subservient to our economics. And I think that that's the problem is there's no, there's no net. And young people get that because they're the ones who are going to suffer. Yeah, yeah, and I've got an observation and then a question. Um, so we've got a group here that we call our Resilient Futures Network Prime, which are they're a group of business leaders mostly, but some community leaders. We come together once a month, uh, often with folks like yourself. So we'll get somebody to come in um, on Zoom and offer some reflections. And then they discuss, well, what does this mean for us? How can we take this forward? And so on. And, and there's a woman... Um, who is a strategist for the one of the local water authorities. And she talked about one of the real challenges in the world today is that we privatize wealth and profit, and then we move to socialize uh, yes. problems, yeah. right? So healthcare, um, pandemics, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So that, that for me aligns very much to what you're just saying, which is we sub, the, the interests of the common good, if you like, or of the commons gets they become subservient to um, private opportunities to accrue wealth. So, you know, you know, it's interesting you say that. I, I agree 100% with what this person has said and what you're saying. But the really fascinating thing is if you look at organizations who understand that, private corporations in the United States actually understand that. Mm. Um, and not all of them, but there's a struggle. But a lot of the best corporations are actually far more progressive than our government. Yeah. So, so that, that leads me to my question, which is going forward, if you like, from today, um, you know, a couple of days after an election which is unresolved into a context where it sounds a bit like we might have to go more divergent before we can start to reconverge around whatever the next part of the experiment might be. What, what, what do you think is going to happen um, out of the election, say, in terms of how do we start? Is there going to be a unifying message, uh, an effort to unify? How's that going to play out potentially, um, depending on who 
ultimately is resolved as president, what happens in the Senate, the House, et cetera, et cetera. What, what are you seeing around so, that journey forward? It's a great question. And my name is Camerano, but in 2016, I got a nickname called Camerano. Um, <laughs> so I just want you and your viewers to remember that, your listeners. <laughs> but the, um, the, I think what I'm seeing is this is not good. The pandemic is not good. The public response kind of propped up the economy, but that got cut off because of the political, the hyper-political nature of our election system. Um, and I think it's likely Biden will be president. Uh, it's not likely he'll have the coalition in the Senate to just do whatever he thinks is right. But I actually think um, the economic crisis that's coming about as a result of this new wave of the pandemic is probably going to dictate everything. And that might, unfortunately, unintentionally be a good thing because it's going to force us to work together in ways that we've been lazy enough and fortunate enough not to have to do. Uh, and so I actually do, I am hopeful, but only because I'm pessimistic about where we're going to be in the next six months. Uh, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not a macroeconomist, but I don't see good things happening. And I don't, I, I have no idea why the stock market hasn't responded the way in a different manner. But, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not hopeful about the next year, but I am hopeful about the two, three years out from there. Uh, I think we're going to be forced to work together kind of the way we did in the depression. And do you think the the um, the system will allow that? Uh, as in, um, you know, one of the things that we talk about is agility and shifting and shaping. America has always been pretty good at that, but getting things to happen. And if I was to put it as a global competitor, that uh, we actually we 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 as a culture we're somewhere between England and America with a lot of Europe and now a huge amount of Asia in our, mm -hmm. our bones, our structure. Uh, we are Asian. Uh, I can remember when I was at school, one of the questions in our social studies was, you know, uh, Australia is geographically what, but culturally what? And the answer was geographically Asian, but culturally English. We, we mm -hmm. are very much a mixture now. And generally speaking, we get on very, very well. We don't necessarily have the issues um, but the, um, uh, our, our, our ties uh, to China and Southeast Asia are huge. And mm -hmm. from experience working, say, in Hong Kong, uh, seeing how fast they do things, you know, uh, much faster than any European country, the quality, you might say, is wanting in some ways, but you're going to see the expansion of the Chinese economy linked in with uh, the um, expatriate um, uh, the, um, network. The expats uh, ne uh, uh, Chinese network is immense all around the world and they all, all know each other and all belong to each other, even though a few generations China, uh, China, away from China into Taiwan, Singapore, Australia, Canada, America. Um, and I just wonder... Uh, is America up to the task of overcoming its flaws in the experiment and really competing well globally against the, the new emerging economies, uh, particularly when they're going to have to have a few years off to readjust the experiment? Um, you know, I, assuming... There's a President Biden, I'm more hopeful that it can happen. I, again, in part because my, the first course I ever taught was in grad school, it was called The Politics of Poverty. And in reading up to teach that course, I remember coming to the conclusion that there wasn't this grand political movement, there was more, oh my gosh, we have to do something together, otherwise we're, we're just not going to make it through this. Uh, and you needed, you know, the, the guidance of Franklin Roosevelt. But the reality is that with a Trump administration, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, our president 
is living in the 1950s. David, you know, the, the America, you know, that you thought you experienced, um, he's, he has this hyper real version of that, that he's going to live in. And that means corporations are the center of our, our you know, concerns. And that, you know, law and order, you know, cops being tough is what makes the world orderly and safe. And, you know, so I, I think it depends on who becomes president. It looks like it's going to be Biden. And so I'm more hopeful. But if President Trump is in a second term, I would say, uh, you know, I don't want to make any financial suggestions, but, you know, um, don't bet on America. Mm. What, what, one, of the, um, one of the things that we've been saying re really since sort of February, March, is that uh, no matter how the pandemic plays out, um, in the grand scale, it's not nearly as catastrophic as some of the things that we may have to deal with at some point in the future if we don't get our act together pretty quickly. In short version, it's how do we take some deep learnings potentially from a COVID experience and a COVID social economic experience into the big one that sits out there, which is the climate reality. Do, do you think, and we, you can see it happening, you know, at the city level in America, you know, the mayor's organizing around the Paris Accords and, and taking forward, trying to take forward um, a climate positive approach, certain corporations now obviously seeing that and probably leading the, the overall political system in that kind of coming through and beyond COVID into climate. What, what do you think the political will is to understand that one and then two to try to take that forward again fast enough in a way that's going to make a difference? You know, actually, I'm going to go back to that Dickens metaphor of the best of times, worst of times. I think you're right. I think the smaller political subdivisions that are most affected, uh, whether it's the state of California and all the other states entering into, um, you know, climate compacts with each other, which are these sort of regional agreements and sometimes even crossing regions like we're in the compact with California. Uh, and we're on different coasts. Mm -hmm. uh, and mayors, I think, are, are going to save the United States. Um, in the pandemic, one of the really interesting things that have been happening below the surface is when the federal government made the decision that they weren't going to coordinate, that it was up to the states, the states didn't just decide they were going to go on their own. They actually entered into this, you know, using sort of a systems approach. They entered into this um, sort of collaborative effort, which was, you know, facilitated by Johns Hopkins University and the Bloomberg School, and Michael Bloomberg underwrote a lot of this. But they were meeting every day through teleconference um, and coordinating and talking about their approaches. And, you know, today there was a, you know, sort of new restrictions imposed, but instead of just being in our jurisdiction, it was the entire New England region, um, you know, from Boston all the way down to Delaware, which, are, which is almost Washington, DC. Mm -hmm. So I think mayors and governors are working together in the absence of federal coordination. And that could save us. Unfortunately, it's not going to save people in Mississippi or in Utah, um, but it very, well, it very well could save a lot of us, particularly where most of our economic activity is generated. Mm. Wow. Well, we could go on all day on this conversation, I am sure. I know I could, and, uh, you know, let's cancel, Dave, cancel the rest of the day, and let's talk to Joe. <laughs> this is much better fun than what we're going to do now. But uh, thanks, Joe. Thanks so much for being with us, and I'll let David close out with some closing remarks. Thanks, David. Yeah, th thanks, Larry. And, um, yeah, Joe, we'll get you to hang on a bit after we do the formal close, just for a final chat. But just to say... Um, Thank you for your thoughtful insights into um, possible ways forward um, for America. And, and really, I think at the end there, reminding us um, about the, um, the power that we have in a more local level, right? If we choose to exercise that and organize that in a way and, and, and can do that in a way that potentially doesn't, um, doesn't divide us in the same way maybe that some of the national and global narratives do. So I think for us, that's a really powerful reinforcement of the importance of local, um, uh, whether that's city or state, uh, in, come, in going forward 
uh, into what might be possible next. So just a huge thank you from us, Joe, for sharing your thoughts and insights around what you're seeing and what might be possible next. And thank you. Thank you both. And thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. We hope you've enjoyed this Straight Talk in the COVID Economy podcast. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. For more free content that will enhance your understanding of this new COVID economy and the actions that you can take to leverage disruptive change, join the Resilient Futures Network at www.resilientfutures.com slash get started. And please support our partner, Impact Africa Network at www.impactafrica.network. We need all the support we can to help them build their own incubator. We know that there are many other great podcasts out there and your time is precious and you chose to listen to Straight Talk on the COVID economy. And we appreciate that. Thank you.